to change my phone number, I had to change my email address, we had to hire like personal security, and there were a, you know, a period of time where I'd go on social media and I would just have a string of people telling me I was a terrible person. If they, you know, if they met me in real, real life, they would try and kill me. And there was a Facebook group at one point that was trying to share my, my home address. And that was not a good feeling, as you can imagine. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is a brand new series of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. We uncover the real stories of the world's best entrepreneurs, so you can hear some pretty crazy stuff while becoming a little more knowledgeable and maybe even a bit more successful if we're doing it right. To kick off this series, we welcome Tom Blomfield, the former CEO and co-founder of Monzo. We talk about mounting pressure when you're at the top, its impact on your mental health and identity, and what it's like founding a bank. Can't be that difficult, right? Now, you've probably heard of Monzo. Started in 2015, it's a digital bank that's easily spotted in the wild thanks to its signature hot coral debit cards. Monzo now has over 5 million customers in the UK, but it's a journey that ended for Tom in January when he stepped away from the business. We'll get into that and so much more in a moment. But first, let's go back to the early days of Monzo. What's the sort of story and relationship about, you know, starting such an exciting crowdfund to get your original community going? Because I guess this is really part of the Monzo story, right, is getting your customers to be obsessed with you, ultimately. And that all comes down to a highly well, a brilliantly executed launch campaign. I think it was very successful. And a lot of it was, we hoped would work that well, and it probably exceeds our expectations of how well it worked. But we really wanted to create something different to the existing banks. And we wanted to do, we believed a set of, a sort of set of things that the banks weren't serving customers particularly well at the moment, that customers sort of expectations had been raised dramatically by things like Spotify and Uber and Airbnb in terms of the user experience and functionality. And we believed in things like transparency and building out in the open, like building kind of hand in hand with our customers rather than kind of unveiling something after two or three years in the dark. And I, I, personally, I was petrified of spending too long without getting customer feedback. So for me, it was a way to kind of validate the idea and the product and make sure that we were actually building something people wanted. I'd previously done GoCardless, uh, done Y Combinator with GoCardless, and it was, they kind of ram it into there that you have to be talking to customers. And normally it takes two or three years to start a bank. And so how do we talk to customers? And the way we did it was to start a prepaid card and really talk about our values and our mission and our kind of core set of beliefs and people kind of joined it as a as a campaign almost i think they believed the same things we believed and so joined out this like emotional attachment to the kind of to the mission or the promise or whatever you want to call it we did a lot of stuff to encourage that so as you say crowdfunding was incredibly successful we did a lot of in-person events uh we had a very very vibrant community forum we did hackathons over the weekends very very often and if you're an early user and you spotted a, a bug or you had a suggestion very often we would have fixed it in a day or two and we'd come back and thank you kind of publicly and it was this like really positive um, reinforcement cycle where people were so excited to find a bug because they'd sort of helped improve the product and i think people love to be love to identify with something that's bigger than them that they believe in that they support and the ability to actually influence the direction of the product that they use every day i think kind of speaks to the builder in all of us a question I'm really curious to learn about from you is, as the CEO of a high-growth startup, from my point of view, the main challenge is to constantly scale your own competency so you can keep up pace with everyone else around you. 
So how did you approach personal growth? How did you manage to scale yourself? And what are the sort of tactics that you can use to share with other people listening that are on a similar path? It's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure I did it all the way, but to the extent I managed to do so, I think being really, really, really open to feedback, even when it's deeply uncomfortable, is very, very useful. The best people I've ever worked with are sort of a sponge for feedback. And they, the best people are not those who start begin their career most competent. It's the ones who improve the fastest. And I'm thinking of a couple of examples of just fabulous people who've just improved so quickly. And so seeking out the feedback and really, really, really working on it, I think is a big part of it. I think figuring out how other people like to be communicated with and like to work and adapting to that rather than the country, which is sort of assuming everyone's going to adapt to you. Um, and then finding people who are really, really good at what they do and asking them loads of questions. So the Stripe founders were great, great kind of mentors for us, and particularly Will Gabrick, who started as their CFO and I think is now chief product officer at Stripe. It's like going in, you know, you're sort of starting year six at school or something. You're coming up from year five into year six and you get the chance to talk to someone who just finished year six and has done all the exams and has made all the mistakes and they give you their answers. And it's just much easier that way. And so there's no reason you can't go and ask people for their answers. They might not always be right, um, but it happens with Stripe, they mostly are right. But, but sort of learning from really great people who have done it very recently, actually. I find it less useful to talk to someone who's like, you know, 30 years on from when they had this experience. But someone who's a year or two or three years ahead of you, I find that's uh, very, very, very valuable. So culture is one of those really fascinating topics in high growth startups, right? So, you know, often very common story. No one gives a shit about it at the start because you're all doing proper work. You're all hustling. It's really, really hard. Things are fast paced. And obviously when it becomes really important, it can often be a little bit late to do anything about it and very notoriously difficult to shape backwards. What was the experience of this at Monzo? Was it the former, the latter or somewhere in between, do you think? It was something we were extremely deliberate about from the start. And I'm not sure we got it right all the time, but it was certainly we were conscious of it and deliberate about it. And it particularly came from my co-founder, Jonas. He'd done Y Combinator before, so he, he and I had sort of signed up for the same mantras. His company had been acquired by Groupon, and I don't think he loved that experience. And so he'd had, you know, he'd been in a big company for a little while and knew a little bit about what he didn't like and was really determined to create a place to work that, that he would like, but also that would be kind of a beacon, I guess. It would be as inclusive as it could be, so that we could, we could attract the most talented, but also the most diverse set of people to come and do a great job. Uh, it was something we were very, very conscious of very early. We worked hard, but it was the earliest days were the, just the most fun. From six months in to about two years in, I would say it just was the absolute most fun we had. Uh, a small team, incredibly capable, working very, very hard, but that feeling of kind of camaraderie and being together and being able to accomplish so much with such a small team, I think that feeling is, for me at least, I'm, I haven't yet experienced anything that beats it, um, perhaps in future, but um, yeah, for me, uh, that's, you know, that's great. So what would you say, you know, reflecting on how good it all was, and obviously knowing that it's not all perfect, what would you say was your biggest challenge when it came to culture then? Were there any notable moments or times that there were slip ups or any experience shares that might give people a bit of an insight what to avoid in the future? One was that we were so focused on kind of being empathetic and helping people that 
the idea that we were a bank and we needed to make money was almost like antithetical to many people's beliefs. <laughs> uh, we just weren't hard-nosed enough about making revenue or cutting costs. I did all the fundraising pretty much um, single-handedly. And so uh, for many of the other employees, which like tens of millions and eventually hundreds of millions of pounds that just appeared and paid their salaries and they could like, you know, work really hard to produce features that users loved. And I don't think, I tried very hard to change this. I think we did change it, but especially in kind of, you know, year two, year three, probably, I don't think we worried enough about making revenue, making profit. Um, because people sort of thought either it didn't matter or it wasn't, they didn't join because they wanted to make loads of money. They wanted to join because they wanted to help people. So that was one problem. Um, but I think it's probably easier to correct from that to like, look, logically, here's why we need to be profitable and sustainable than from the kind of investment bank extreme of just everyone is out to make as much money as possible and try and instill some ounce of humanity or empathy into that bunch. I think that's a harder job. I've never worked in investment, so I don't know. That's one problem. The second problem was trying to combine the different cultures of mostly young, mostly very liberal tech and startup folks, and I would count myself and Jonas for that, with somewhat older banking people who we needed to create a bank, who were absolutely vital and super, super useful. I'm incredibly grateful that they joined and worked so hard to make Monzo what it is. But that was a cultural divide between the sort of older experienced bankers and the younger kind of tech people. And that was tricky. And I'm not sure we ever really, I think now it's solved to an extent, but it's, it is tricky. And culturally, how do you deal with, how do you think of competition? So Starling aside on the basis of, you know, like there's always this like in the back of your mind, you, you started it. So they're in your mind, but obviously Revolut and others, was there like an attitude about it? Was it irrelevant? Just focus. We're all got massive, massive market. So it's as interesting as NatWest or Lloyd's. How, how was the, not your personal opinion, but how was the company culture in relation to that? Irrelevant. It, we just didn't think about it. We didn't think about it. And the only thing we did was that if anyone was bad-mouthing competitors, we would shut it down very, very quickly. If a big bank had an outage or whatever, you know, a story came out about competitor X doing something bad, you know, there's a sort of tendency to be like, oh, well, you know, we always knew they were insert expletive. And just like, that is not useful or helpful. And if it gets out into the public, it's just going to cause a massive negative story that we don't need. And it's just like, it's unnecessary. So don't do it. Like, really, we tried to shut that down pretty quickly. But overall, we just, we didn't really pay any attention to any competitors. Perhaps we should have. I think Revolut probably was better at making money than we were. We perhaps should have looked a little more closely at a couple of things they were doing. But for the rest of it, I, I just think the big banks in particular were just sort of irrelevant. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Looking back, what do you actually think you did really well at Monzo that led to your success? And what do you think you didn't do so well that meant you couldn't be even more successful? I think that's a simple one. I think we create, I mean, we created a, just an amazing brand uh, and community and followership. We're last year, I think or 2019 at least, we were the most recommended brand in the UK and by like almost 10 percentage points clear of the next brand, which was TransferWise. I mean, we were just so head and shoulders of, in terms of just a brand that was authentic and real and resonated with people, it was just fabulous. And I'm really, really proud of that. And I, I think a few people who did a lot to make that happen, Tristan Thomas was our VP of marketing, who, who joined as a marketing intern, I think, who basically is responsible for that. I'm incredibly grateful for. So I think the brand basically it led to a lot of very positive side effects, like very, very rapid organic growth without spending those in marketing. What we did wrong was just not pay enough attention soon enough to unit economics, which is just a balance between marginal costs and revenue. And that was just out of whack for too long and meant we had to raise more money than our competitors on the terms were still great, but relatively speaking, worse terms than our direct competitors. And we just didn't push revenue generating features and, and you know, charging for things soon enough. Things like a very, very small minority of customers would just like only use the Monzo card to take out cash when they went abroad. It's just like incredibly costly and totally pointless because you can spend with your card and you get a great exchange rate. Why do you need the cash? Or, you know, there's some customers who like ordered 20 or 30 replacement cards a year. We had a board member who came from American Express and he said, oh yeah, I have a customer who do that, do that. And she was making a dress. She's like an artist who made an American Express dress out of all the cards. It's like, cool, but that just costs so much money. Please don't do it. So let's get to, I guess, the most recent chapter in your life, which is something, you know, that not all founders go through, which is leaving your company that you founded and at a point where there's there's still so much to do. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because it's such a it is such a common story, but not such a commonly told story. It won't surprise you. Um, that I am particularly interested in this part, not just from the experience share that you can teach other people or you can rather 
rather than teach, share so that others can learn, listen with empathy and have some understanding of it. But also, you know, you came out recently and talked about some of the mental health struggles and personally as someone that runs a mental health related company and is big into entrepreneurship and mental health, which I think do not get discussed anywhere near enough. And so there's always a big focus in secret leaders. These are really important things to share. You know, the name Monzo and the name Tom Blomfield have been so interconnected over the last few years that the first question I want to ask you is about identity, which is before we get into like leaving and not whatever, like how are you feeling with regards to your identity at the moment? Pretty good, I think. I mean, I've had a bit of time to mull it over and I'm really, really proud of what we created Monzo and the part I played in that. But it's also nice to have kind of that separation. I had my, I lost access to my company emails and Slack about nine days ago. And to not have that weight is really nice, actually. Running a bank of 5 million customers is really hard, it turns out. And there are people... Yeah, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there are people who've just done it, you know, they've trained for their whole careers and they've run, you know, had the CEO position or, you know, number two or number three position and sort of trained for this. And they're good at it and they enjoy it. And that's awesome that they're in place doing a great job now. And it just wasn't me, it turns out. And so I'm proud of it. And it, I think it will be something that defines a big part of my life for probably the rest of my life. Will I ever do anything that's sort of as well known? I don't know. I, I actually don't have particular aspirations to go out and kind of beat it. I think I would love to focus more inwardly, if that makes sense, on like personal fulfillment and contentment and sort of happiness and family and friends rather than like what's the biggest company you can create because I had a stab at that and it you know it went pretty well and I enjoyed a lot of it um but there were also parts that I didn't love it took over my life really to the detriment of basically every other part of my life yeah it's a weird mix of emotions a, a pride but a sort of sadness and uh, some amount of regret yeah it's complicated I read, I read that in the scrappy early days of Monzo, you know, they were the ones that you enjoyed the most. You've reiterated that today. There's, you know, six months to second year in. And obviously as the bank grew with millions of customers, it became less and less. And it sounds like, you know, it's a similar kind of thing where, you know, you left go cardless because it didn't really excite you. Now with Monzo, it's almost like you've realized that that isn't necessarily all it's cracked up to be. To be the CEO of 5 million customers does sound like quite a lot in all fairness. I guess, you know, the question is, was there a trigger point that made you really want to leave? Was there one customer email that you were like, that's it, I'm done? <laughs> but no, but in all seriousness, was there, was there a moment or was it a, a buildup of feelings over time? And can you just take us through some of, if you can remember, the decision process that goes into a big decision like this? There were lots of things building up. It wasn't a single kind of trigger point. And by the way, I, I left GoCardless when it was 35 people. It was... Uh, just much, much different. Go Kart, and Monzo was, I don't know if it was 1,500 or 1,600 people when I left or something. It was um, very, very, very different. When you get to that size, it's about people management. It, you've spent almost no time on product or customer, really. It's about process, a lot of, a lot of process, extraordinary amount of regulation and dealing with, I mean, we had two main regulators, but probably four or five or six total regulators to include all the different bodies. And it would be multiple conversations every day with them, managing investors, existing and new, hiring people, firing people, dealing with like sort of 
internal politics and disciplinary procedures, you've got 1,600 people, someone is going to be misbehaving at any point in time. And that's, I tried to have others deal with that, but if it was serious enough, it would boil up to me, it would bubble up to me. And again, we had 5 million customers and the overwhelming majority were absolutely delightful. But if you have 5 million customers, you're going to have a small number who are criminals, actually, who are murderers and kidnappers and pimps and drug dealers. And it's pretty horrific, actually. I mean, I think we did a good job of fighting financial crime. There's a, a bunch of stuff which we aren't able to talk about in the press where we really, really helped law enforcement crack down on some pretty horrific individuals. But as a result, I had to change my phone number. I had to change my email address. We had to hire like personal security. And there were, you know, a period of time where I'd go on social media and I would just have a string of people telling me I was a terrible person. If they, you know, if they met me in real life, they would try and kill me. And there was a Facebook group at one point that was trying to share my, my home address. And that was not a good feeling as you can imagine. So that was, uh, I think the, the small minority of customers who did that were, that was tough. And then adding up the press, I think the press also was not, we had this, I think, um, very common experience with the press where when you are new and unknown, it generates the most clicks or sells the most papers. If you sort of pipe up the thing and whether you're a footballer or a, a musician or a entrepreneur or a new bank, whatever you are, like it sells more papers if you kind of create buzz until you are just big enough to tear that thing down and thereby generate even more clicks. And so you get to this tipping point where it's like, oh, it's, they're well known enough that like if the Telegraph or whoever, like tell all their sort of 55 to 65 year old readers that this new bank is ruining their children's awareness of money, they're just going to generate more clicks. And that's quite a frustrating experience. So we went from being the kind of press darling up to about the end of 2018 to 2019, actually having a really tough time in the press. And some things were fair, but I think overwhelmingly it, it was not balanced. Uh, and there were times where I went to talk to editors and like laid out what they'd sort of written. And it just doesn't make any sense. And to their credit, they did change a bit, but I, it was, so it's a combination of all of that. And then when you layer on, onto all of that, you layer a once in a century global pandemic and funding being pulled and redundancies of several hundred people. And that's tough. It's not a single thing, but it's probably 15 things, which together made me say eventually, like, this is probably more than I can bear on my shoulders right now. And I've been talking to our board members or investors, Eileen Burbage, particularly, who is a great friend for about a year and a half or so about changing my role or leaving or doing something different to try and relieve some of the pressure. And she was, I mean, personally, she put a lot of work in and um, I'm really, really grateful for that. But it was this kind of build up of pressure in a year and a half or two years that eventually it was just sort of, as I said, I think in an interview, I sort of put my hand up and asked for help. And I'm really, really grateful that the board and my the rest of my exec team and investors were so receptive to that, to say, we you know, we, we can help, we'll put people in. Luckily we had TS, our US CEO sort of in place actually. And he was able to pretty seamlessly switch over and take over the UK CEO role and give me some, um, some well-needed time off. So it was tough. It wasn't fun at all. And I've talked a little bit about suffering that kind of stress, which leads a buildup of enough stress, I think becomes kind of anxiety. And that when that starts impacting your sleep, or at least when it impacted my sleep, it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. 
where not sleeping makes you your work worse, you make worse decisions. And that kind of compounds over time. I definitely struggled and I wasn't the only one. I think in any hyper growth company, there's a ton of pressure on lots and lots of people. And I think at Monzo, we are generally quite good at talking about mental health and giving that like sort of pressure release valve. You know, if it gets too much to people, there's some way of either blowing off steam or asking for help or taking time off. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. Was it, you know, as in you, you talked about stress, you talked about anxiety, um, did it amount to burnout essentially? I don't know. I think burnout is used for lots of different scenarios. And I, I, for me, it was a sort of having my emotional reserves run dry so that you face a new problem. And if you're sort of fresh and energized and well slept, you sort of know this is, you know, this kind of thorny problem, I'm going to grasp it. And I, like, it might sting me a bit, it might hurt a bit, but ultimately I know I can beat it. And so I will take that pain because I know I face these kind of problems for and I've overcome them. Like I will prevail. For me, after doing that for five or six years, your, or at least my emotional reserves were reduced to the point where you have this stack of problems you're dealing with. And you, you know, kind of intellectually, you probably will figure them out. But another problem arrives and you sort of think, I just don't want to deal with it. I just don't want to think about that because I know it's going to add like emotional angst or pain or stress or something. And I'm at zero. I'm dealing with a stack over here. And I think I can deal with it. This, this other thing, I can't even begin to engage with this problem because my emotional reserves are at zero. And it's weird when I felt this sort of up and down for a couple of years before I left. And like raising investment was often very stressful, um, lots and lots of pressure. The weirdest thing would happen when we closed investment. The documents were signed and the money was wired the next day. I'd look at all of these problems and go, the solution is so easy now. Because that weight has been lifted off me, I can now go and tackle these other five problems I've been putting off for so long because I've sort of been, the weight's been taken off my shoulders, this thing I was worrying about so much or whatever, I've been replenished somehow that I can now take on you know, more stress, more whatever, more pressure. And you'd burn through them in like two hours. That's the weirdest thing. I knew the answer all along, but I just didn't want to engage with it because I I had this thing hanging over me. So you move the thing and then suddenly like everything opens up. And that's, it's a bizarre feeling, but ultimately that's, I think that's how I'd best describe it. I don't know if it's burnout or not, but depleting my emotional reserves is the best way I can put it, I think. Okay. So 
I would assume, and I'm sure people would assume, as, uh, you know, one of Europe's top founder and CEOs, you probably have thought processes and frameworks for how you approach certain things in your life. Your next thing sounds like trying to give yourself the space, not to force yourself to come up with something new, not to be overly ambitious or put pressure on yourself about what might be next. How are you approaching sort of day by day then? Is there like, is there any semblance of a plan, even if it's don't come up with a plan for a whole year? Is there some kind of framework you're putting in place to catch yourself? Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, the first rule has been don't dive into something too soon. So I think, I mean, with Go Cardless, I've been on gardening leave from my job for about three or four days when I agreed to start a company with Matt Hiroki. With Starling, I'd left the dating website probably the four days before I agreed to join Anne and start that thing. And then Monzo kind of happened very quickly after that. So that I haven't really been good at taking my time and being considerate. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to do that. Lesson number one is just sort of see something, see some opportunities, talk to people and just turn them down. Just sort of take time, which I'm doing right now. And it's sort of interesting to me to meet lots of different interesting people. I'm not ruling out being the CEO of something big again in the future but it's not my goal. I really, really love the early stage working with being a founder or working with founders at the kind of seed, pre-seed, series A, even series B feels a bit, it feels quite early to me now where you're really iterating on product and be, the velocity is very, very high and you're able to kind of, a small group of people can do something amazing. I love that feeling. I'm probably too hands-on to be an investor, I think. I might, I might do a bit of investing, but I don't think I'm particularly good at it. I think I'm a much better problem solver than I am a judge of people, actually. And I think to be an early stage investor, you've just got to, you've just got to have a great read on people. And so, I don't know, some model that lets me get involved with early stage companies, but with someone else as the kind of founder or CEO eventually. I don't know. And I, I'm really interested in healthcare, particularly healthcare, I think is just such a big problem and could be so much better. And there's just so many daft things going on that shouldn't be the case apart from the way that it's run and the way things are built there is just doesn't make any sense to me. I do think during COVID, the adoption of technology in the NHS in particular has been good relative to how it was before, which was dreadful. I think it's now like a bit sensitive. I don't think it's any good still, but it's just, it was so atrociously bad before that the improvement I think is, is tangible, but there's so much more to do in healthcare. But it's incredibly heavily regulated and people start screaming about stealing their data every time you try and like provide a service that automates anything. Huge, huge opportunity. Not sure you want to get involved in the horrible regulation and sort of data privacy world again. Before you go, Tom, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And what would your advice be, knowing what you know now, to other founders on a high growth journey? <laughs> Don't start a bank. <laughs> yeah, good. That's not the advice you were given, though, that's for sure. <laughs> no. Well, actually, it probably was. I think a lot of people told me it was impossible. I was good at ignoring it. Make something people want. I mean, fun, the sort of Y Combinator mantras, make something people want. That kind of expands into a whole set of advice. Broadly, launch early and talk to your customers to make sure you're actually making something people want. You might have the most brilliant ideas, but some of the smartest people I know spend years and years and years building in secret because they've got this amazing, they think amazing vision. It just turns out no one wants it. It's such a waste of time and money and effort. Just launch it and see if anyone will give you money for it. 
it's a really good trick to see if you've got product people want. So launch early, basically. Don't launch a bag. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Words to live by. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Before you go, we're putting into practice something Tom Blomfield and lots of our guests say is a key part of startup success. Test stuff quickly by putting it in front of real users, that's you, and do things that might not scale, that's on us. We want to grow this podcast by giving you real career value, not to mention some quality entertainment. So we've hacked together an MVP of a podcast referral scheme to do just that. We're offering three prizes for listeners like you who share the podcast between now and March the 9th. The three winners will get a one-to-one mentorship session with either Anne-Marie Huby, the co-founder of Just Giving, or Graham Hobson, the co-founder of Photobox, or Diraj Mukherjee, the co-founder of Shazam, or with me, yours truly, Dan Murray-Serta. We'll decide who the best mentor is for you, depending on the individual circumstances and what you need the most right now for your career. We'll also spend £250 on a present for you that would make a difference to your career. Whether that's a smart office chair or some amazing headphones or a standing desk, whatever it is that's going to help you progress the most. Every time you share the podcast and introduce us to a new listener, you'll get another ticket in the raffle. So the more you share, the greater the chance you'll have of winning. But don't worry, even if you only bring on board one new listener, you'll still be in the draw. To get involved, you'll need your own unique referral link. So please head to secretleaders.com forward slash hype. You can find the URL in the show notes too, but that is secretleaders.com forward slash hype, H-Y-P-E. Good luck. Next week on Secret Leaders. Their female founded businesses did better and outperformed their male founded businesses. In their top 10 companies, three of the companies had a female co-founder, which was vastly disproportionate compared to how many women they invested in. He was talking about what the, how the product resonated with caterers and retailers. And at the top of the list of things that resonated, he'd put two female founders. And so it's important not to just be happy with where we are today and to keep pushing the boundaries. That was a clip from the last live event we did in 2020, featuring the founders of Olio, Albright, Entrepreneur First and Mr. and Mrs. Smith on International Women's Day, who are sharing their wisdom of what they've learned and can share about leadership from a female point of view. Tune in or you'll miss out. If you enjoyed the show, then please get your phone out and send a link to a friend who you think needs to hear it. And if you really loved it, then why not leave us a review too? You can now also find me on Clubhouse at Dan Murray Serta. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.